Click, listen, enjoy. Broadcasting live worldwide. Thank you for tuning in to Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. You're listening to Talkline with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. With us right now is Dr. Joshua Elie Plout. He is the He's actually written two books. We're going to focus on one of his books on our broadcast tonight. Also the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. His book is called A Kosher Christmas. Tis the season to be Jewish came out in 2012, but still very widely read today. Dr. Plough, thank you for joining us. Nice to be with you all. Thank you. I know the book is dealing with them being Jewish around Christmas time. It's a holiday where Jews feel very uncomfortable, especially in America. But it's true in Europe as well, with all the symbols of the holiday and the television and the things. So what motivated you to write this book? I uh, wrote this book originally as a Ph.D. dissertation at uh, NYU uh, in the Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies. I was advised by one of my friends and scholars, Professor Jonathan Sarna, that this was a topic that had not been studied at all. And... uh, it perked my interest because uh, I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, and then we made Aliyah to Israel when I was 10, and I never personally had a Christmas problem. Christmas was just, you know, not in my awareness as an issue of feeling like an outsider in the United States. And then growing up from the age of 10 in Israel where, you know, the, the Christmas was not celebrated because it's a Jewish state. So uh, Professor Sarno's idea of intrigued me, and the more I looked into it, I, I liked it. You know, when you do a Ph.D. dissertation, you want to do a topic that hopefully is a, a new area of study. And uh, I have since that time spent the last 20 years really as a scholar who has studied and looked into every aspect relating to the history of Jews and Christmas in the United States and some of the antecedents in Europe. Now, what is a Jew supposed to do on Christmas? Let's look back. So what do Jews did Christmas Eve? Let's look so at the, Europe and let's look at America. So, so there, was a divide, there was a divide in Europe between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. In Western Europe, uh, the Jews were more integrated, acculturated, assimilated into society. And uh, we know as early as really the 1820s that uh, we have evidence of the first Jew to have a Christmas tree uh, her name was Fanny von Arnstein, and uh, she was uh, among the aristocratic families in Berlin, later moved to Vienna. And uh, she had a Christmas tree in her home. Coincidentally, uh, Mozart uh, lived for a few years with her and composed some of his greatest uh, musical pieces. So uh, we know that she had a Christmas tree, and then uh, we have pictures uh, period pictures, photographs from the 1850s to the 1920s of many German Jews with uh, Christmas trees. Uh, they celebrated the, the national holiday not as a religious observance, but as a national cultural observance with trees, with gift-giving, uh, with a festive meal. But in no way did uh, the majority of them in any way recognize uh, 
the day is the birth of Jesus. Now, having said that, that was not all of the Western European Jewish communities in Germany. That was some. Uh, we can't know specifically how many, but there was a good portion who did not celebrate Christmas in any way, and there were a good portion who did. In Eastern Europe, the Jews were uh, more likely never to observe Christmas. Uh, it was not within their worldview. They were more traditional. They were more observant religiously, and they uh, abstained from uh, going out on Christmas Eve. Uh, we know from medieval times that it was already dangerous in terms of uh, one's physical safety to go out on Christmas, tree, Christmas Eve, uh, and one would not go to the Bet Midrash or to the synagogue to study because one was supposed to study Torah or Talmud every day, but it was uh, a dangerous activity when uh, the general population was celebrating Christmas. People were drinking, people were caroling, and, uh, you know, part of the message of Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus, but also there were preachers in the churches who would say that uh, Jesus was actually... Uh, you know, put to death by the Jews. So this would be a night in which, and we have historical evidence specifically in 1881 in a Polish, uh, I think in Warsaw, where there was an actual pogrom on Christmas against the Jews, and similar to that also on Easter. So it became a night where Jews stayed home. They didn't uh, study, and there were different names. They never used the name Christmas, but by region and by town in Stettel, they had different names for the for the night and the day. So one place uh, in, in, in Galicia and Ukraine, Christmas was referred to as Moitrikenach, um, the fearful night, and uh, alludes to being fearful of persecution on Christmas Eve. There's a name in Yiddish, Blindelnach, blind night. It denotes a night in which the light of Torah study is curtailed, or Finsterenach, uh, the dark night. It signifies the darkness maintained in Jewish homes during Christmas Eve. Uh, and each of these names, as well as there's a night, Bez Gebornis, evil birthing, and woe night. And, you know, that reflects the character of the Eastern European response to Christmas. Uh, you know, in Southern and Central Europe, there were terms to denote Christmas, such as Goyimnacht, Toilenacht, uh, uh, the night of the crucified one, and Yozelenacht, Jesus night. And, uh, you know, this showed the fear that Jews had of that night. But the most popular name was Nittelnach. And uh, Nittelnach was, uh, you know, had to do with uh, some people say it's Nun Yud Tet Lamed. It's Neat Eden Torah Learning. Jews do not study Torah on, um, on Christmas. And that's where that name came from. But there are Satmar Hasidim who call it Bittelnach. That uh, it's a night of no learning, that it's actually Batul. If Jews didn't study, what did they do? Well, there were stories called Toldot um, Yeshu and Maaset Talui, which were stories about um, Jesus that uh, circulated and were told in the oral tradition in the Jewish community. Uh, there were also games played in Eastern Europe. Some of the customs, you know, there's a prohibition on gambling and card playing, but it was allowed eventually in medieval times on Hanukkah. And uh, I believe I'm um, just hypothesizing that that custom, because of the 
coinciding of Hanukkah and Christmas in the same month uh, would actually cause these games to be played on Christmas Eve, uh, gambling, card playing, in particular chess. And there's a famous picture in the 1930s of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in those days playing chess with his son-in-law, who eventually became the uh, uh, the last uh, uh, Chabad uh, chief rabbi, um, Menachem Schneerson, playing with his uh, father-in-law chess. So, uh, you know, this was a time which people did other things rather than study, because uh, when you study, it elevates, in this case, because Jesus' birthday was on the 24th, or in Eastern Europe it would have been the 6th of January, if you study on that night, it elevates that person's soul. So one was going to abstain, it was uh, believed, you know, one did not want to promote something they didn't believe in. So, now, there were all kinds of other customs related to Nittelnach, including, I believe you write about eating garlic? Eating garlic, uh, you know, it has a distasteful smell in uh, covering mirrors and just uh, anything. The garlic is, you know, to keep demonic spirits away from you. And uh, it was also a night one did not procreate because it was considered, you know, bad luck to procreate on a night celebrating another deity's birth. So, you know, these were, uh, a lot of this was all in the oral tradition. It belonged to an old world uh, in Eastern Europe where, you know, the relationships between the different religions were very antagonistic, not what we have in the United States of America today, where there's peaceful coexistence. And, uh, you know, and so when Jews came to the United States, you had two different strains of tradition. You had the German Jews, and I focused on the ones who went from Bavaria to San Francisco and brought the Christmas tree with them. The Haas family was one of the first two families to settle in San Francisco. And for 70 years into the early 1960s, they celebrated a, a Christmas meal at their house with presents and a family celebration. Now, be, before, was, before we continue in the United States, I just want to mention that uh, Dr. Theodore Herzl had a Christmas tree, and I believe you, you write about Gershon Shalom also had a Christmas tree. Yes. The story of, of we, we all know that uh, Theodore Herzl's identity was awakened when he was a journalist in, in Paris uh, during the, the Dreyfus trial and uh, made him reexamine his own uh, identity. But uh, we know that uh, Theodore Herzl wrote the, the Jewish state, Judenstadt, in 1895, his seminal book on Zionism. And Vienna's chief rabbi, Moritz Gutmann, visited Herzl to discuss the new book. The visit occurred on December 24th, Christmas Eve, and the chief rabbi was surprised to find the Herzl household displayed a Christmas tree. In his diaries, Herzl wrote, quote, I was just lighting the Christmas tree for my children when Rabbi Gutmann arrived. He seemed upset by the Christian custom. And this is Herzl concluding in his diary, well, I will not let myself be pressured, but I don't mind if they call it the Hanukkah tree, the winter solstice. So that, that was Theodore Herzl. Um, and then the story, another story I found was Gershon Shalom, who was born in 1897, and uh, he was an esteemed scholar, as we know, of Jewish mysticism. And he remembers his parents creating a festive mood in their Berlin home on Christmas Eve. And the atmosphere was enhanced considerably by the inclusion of a Christmas tree. And under the tree one year, ironically, was a photograph of Theodore Herzl in a black frame, which was given lovingly to Shalom by his parents 
who know, knew how much Gershon Sholem admired Herzl and Zionism. And then Sholem wrote, quote, Since the days of my grandparents, Christmas was celebrating our family with roast goose or hare, a decorated Christmas tree, which my mother bought at the market by St. Peter's Church in Berlin, and the big distribution of presents for servants, relatives, and friends. That was a quote. And uh, Shalom's parents told him that Jews participated in Christmas because Christmas was a German national festival celebrated by all Christian citizens, including Jews. And he even remembered how his aunt played on the piano and treated the household cook and the servant to Silent Night, Holy Night. And, uh, you know, Shalom as a child was dazzled by Christmas until 1911. He must have been then about 14, and he began to study Hebrew, and he realized that his Jewish identity was not consistent with the presence of any form of home-oriented Christmas celebration. And so he started going to his uncle's house to celebrate Hanukkah when they coincided, and then he'd go out with teenagers to Maccabean balls for teenagers. But he never, I want to just say something. But, but, but he never Germany, went to his own house for Christmas, right? Because he didn't want to celebrate Christmas. He once. wanted to get away, yeah, which is, you know, a, a common practice that people sort of, you know, they, they want to, if you're not part of Christmas, you don't want to be surrounded by it if you can help it. So that's for individuals. Now, you know, it, interestingly, Jews in Germany called Christmas Eve Weinuka, Holy Hanukkah, lampooning the German Protestant name for Christmas, which was Weihnachten or Holy Night. So, and uh, so you know, Weinuka was the merging of of the word with Hanukkah. And there were actually cartoons in the German Jewish press showing the morphing of a menorah into a Christmas tree. They called it a Darwinian uh, evolution. When we come back, I want to talk about America and how American Jews, what they do on December 24th. We're going to be right back. Our guest is Dr. Joshua Ellie Plout. He wrote the definitive book. It's called A Kosher Christmas. Tis the season to be Jewish. We're going to be right back. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please become a fan of TalkLine with Zeb Brenner on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, and YouTube. On Twitter at TalkLine Network, if you have an Android phone, please download our free app in the Google Store. For iPhones, download the Jewish Radio app. Of course, tune in 24 hours a day at TalkLineCommunications.com for nonstop Jewish broadcasting. TalkLine Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch he has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the TalkLine network and TalkLine's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now your host. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Our guest is Dr. Joshua Ellie Plout. He's written two books, one about Greek Jews, but 
The one that's getting a lot of attention, even though it was published in 2012, is called A Kosher Christmas is a Season to be Jewish. What's a Jew to do on, on Christmas? So, uh, Dr. Plout, I know we're Jews in Europe had one way of dealing with it. So I want to talk about Jews in America, but you had some thoughts about Jews in Europe and how they what they did on December 24th or January 5th on that calendar. Well, I just want to add a a historical footnote that's important because we're looking at medieval times when we look at the origin of customs today, whether it's what Jewish minhag or custom is or what people who celebrate Christmas, their traditions. But if you look at three important events, one in antiquity was the equinox, and that came first, that people observed the shifting uh, of the moon and the sun and the shortening of the day the shortest day of the year, uh, being around Christmas time and the solstice. But then later on came the Maccabean Revolt in Hanukkah, also around the same time, on the 25th of Kislev in the Jewish year. Uh, and then after that, the birth of Jesus, which may not have been on the 24th of December, but because of Hanukkah and, be- and because of the 25th, because of Hanukkah, and because of the equinox, you know, these three dates all share, uh, all, these three events share the same date, okay? And it was very wise to have that date of Christmas share the date with Hanukkah and the equinox if you were building up a religion and you wanted to follow it. So that's just, uh, you know, but there, there are people who trace Nittal, back to the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmudic tractate of Avodah Zarah, in which Nitto begins on the date which makes the winter equinox and the lengthening of the day uh, in terms of increased daylight. So, you know, you could look at that as well, really, back in history. Uh, that, 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 that explains the date. So, you know, you have the equinox, you have Hanukkah, and you have Christmas all sharing the same moment. Fascinating. Now, in America, obviously, it's different, even though there are people who still commemorate Nittelnacht in America. But how did Chinese food end up in the in the mix? Even Orthodox Jews will eat Chinese food on December 24th. How did that get to be the case? Well, the majority of, of immigrants who came to the United States, Jewish immigrants, landed in New York and resided in the largest concentration on the Lower East Side. And the other large immigrant community on the Lower East Side were uh, Chinese immigrants. And so these two communities coexisted and mingled side by side. And uh, it's documented in the 1890s that Jews started going out to eat. They were leaving behind uh, the old uh, traditions and and laws of keeping kosher. And uh, they would go into a Chinese restaurant where there was never a dairy ever served in the cuisine. Um, the food was chopped up, and, uh, and there, was, uh, there, was no, there was no symbols like you would have in an Italian restaurant of crosses, of pictures of saints or the Pope uh, or a priest. And so it was a, a very neutral type of environment, and uh, it was this custom amongst East European uh, Jews, according to the forward newspaper of Oisessen, that people would go out to, to eat. And, you know, there is this concept that sociologists at Queens College came up with that they called safe trace, that people actually would eat 
non-kosher food because it was concealed in a wonton and it was chopped up and they never saw it. So, you know, we're talking now about people who've left behind the dietary rules, and uh, but there was never any dairy. Also, there are similarities in, in terms of the flavoring and the spicing between Chinese food and East European foods, sweet and sour. And uh, so eventually, over time, uh, you know, there, there were many Jews who patronized Chinese restaurants in New York, and eventually that spread across the United States as well. So the communities got along. There was never a history of any persecution or anti-Semitism in China. And so the relationships between Jews and uh, Chinese immigrants in the United States was cordial and friendly. I found only um, uh, the first indication of Chinese food on Christmas uh, through a citation in the New York Times, 1935, uh, that talks about uh, a man who actually owned a Chinese food from Manhattan to a Jewish orphanage home for children in Newark, New Jersey. So uh, I think that's where we have our first mention. And then the question becomes, you know, that now there's a proliferation of kosher Chinese restaurants as well, and not only Chinese, but Asian restaurants. And these are places that are open on Christmas because it's, uh, they do not, by and large, celebrate uh, Christmas, but they're Buddhists. So, you know, I call it a safe place to go. And uh, Jews, I think, who have felt like outsiders historically to the holiday look for ways that they can be together and celebrate community and proclaim and announce their Jewish identity. So if you can do it in a family-style restaurant with Chinese food or, you know, through doing something like going to the movies, but it's trying to be an insider in a holiday where you feel like you're outside the holiday. And believe it or not, this I call it a sacred Jewish tradition now that Jewish Americans like to go out on Christmas Eve and they like to go to Chinese restaurants to affirm their identity in public and not in private. In other words, in America, we see a shift away from locking oneself in the home and playing games and being afraid to being out there, you know, actually celebrating, but not celebrating the holiday. Okay, but of course, we're not talking about where there's intermarriage, where they're mixing the religions together. And, you know, I call that like, you know, it's called for some people Krismuka or some people it's a completely neutered celebration like Festivus from the Seinfeld show where there's no is, religion. Is, but is a Hanukkah bush still uh, something that people do today? Yes, I, I think, you know, so we, 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 we see Henrietta Zold, the founder of Hadassah in the 1870s, she ridiculed, uh, in, I believe it was in, in Baltimore, in writing the, the Hanukkah bush. But uh, I, I personally have never seen in my life and in my studies, it's interesting you bring that up, a, a, a Jew who says they have a Hanukkah bush. I, I, but I think the tree in a Jewish home, because of intermarriage or custom, is there. It's there. I don't know that it has religious significance as much as a national holiday custom. I, I, you know, but again, we... There, there were surveys done by sociologists from the University of Chicago in the 1940s and 50s to see the prevalence of how many Jewish homes had Christmas trees. And 
I think have found that about 20 to 30 percent of Jewish homes may have had a Christmas But I tree. think what happened, Dr. Plout, is that Hanukkah has become more popular. So when that's been, you, know, you never saw Hanukkah celebrated in such a public way. Chabad had a lot to do with putting menorahs in public places and the controversy. So maybe that has helped change things where now it's cool to celebrate Hanukkah too. So maybe that's had to change. In fact, there's a joke that's told about a rabbi who was given a vision in 1890 what's going to happen a uh, hundred years down the road. And he sees the Holocaust and the creation of the state of Israel. And he's saddened by the Holocaust. He's happy by the creation of the state of Israel. Then he sees Jews in 2020 uh, celebrating Hanukkah. I should say 2019 because this year is a changed year. But they're bustling about and doing it. He says, this is what they do for Hanukkah. Imagine what they do for Shavuos. So, so things have changed with that. So maybe that's had an impact where more Jews are proud to be. They're not ashamed to celebrate Hanukkah. Maybe that's had an impact. Well, two things with Hanukkah. Thank you for... To bring that up, the the way we like to look at it as scholars and teachers is there's been the Americanization of Hanukkah through its magnification, and it was done in the 1920s and 30s commercially. So you know, different stores uh, started selling Hanukkah gift wrapping paper and paper plates with Hanukkah menorah on it and and uh, decorations for the house. And, home, gift, and Hallmark gift. Hanukkah cards, right? That's right, Hallmark Hanukkah cards. And, and you know, and over time, there was this explosion of the commercialization of Christmas and magnifying it. By the way, the reason is because it's parallel to Christmas. And the same thing with Passover becoming extremely popular, even amongst non-observant Jews in the United States, because of its proximity to Easter. Marshall Sklar, the great uh, sociologist, Blessed memory from Brandeis talked about which holidays in the United States have become more prominent, and he found that they have a parallel, uh, uh, parallel importance in uh, the culture at large. So, I think the surveys show that maybe 89 or 90 percent of American Jews celebrate Passover in some way. Yes, but Hanukkah, Hanukkah is considered, you know, extremely popular. It's in the public place. The last chapter in my book talks about from. Uh, Madonnas to menorahs and documents the whole Chabad movement's uh, very strong campaign at the direction of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Schneerson, a blessed memory, that he, he, uh, he promoted in 1977 or 78 the first lighting of a very small menorah, Hanukkah, in Philadelphia near the Liberty Bell. And then he instructed his emissaries, his shlichim, to go all over the world and to spread the message in the light of Hanukkah. Now, here's the crux of my finding in the book, that we have helped to neutralize in the United States the message that is religious about Christmas and amplified those values we find in the Christmas season that are also Jewish. So, when you light festival lights on Hanukkah, it has to do with religious freedom and the joy of life, the, the Chag Urim, the festival of lights. And, you know, for people celebrating Christmas, there's the joy of light as well. So you have converging values here between the idea of religious liberty and expressed through light and the light of Christmas, which have to do with goodwill to humanity, you know, the message of Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol, the fellowship. So 
when you have converging values, we feel very comfortable stressing those values. The best example is what I call the Christmas mitzvah. It's volunteering on Christmas to do good deeds to help enable our neighbors who celebrate Christmas to give them the day off. So a Jewish doctor will take their turn and replace a Christian colleague in the hospital on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day so their colleague can be at home and celebrate with their family. A U.S. postal worker will, you know, work on that day if they're Jewish to give their Christian colleague a day off. Or we might help prepare meals in food shelters or deliver meals. And, you know, it's what Ronald Reagan said about volunteerism. It's Americans hope helping Americans side by side. And that's really, again, there's the Jewish value of tzedakah. And you write about it. We have a few more moments. You write about Dr. Joshua Plout in your book, The Men Who Saved Christmas, about Orthodox Jewish owner Aaron Feuerstein of, of a factory, Malden Mills, who saved Christmas by, even though his factory burnt down, and still giving Christmas bonuses and payments. Oh, I love that story. The Men Who Saved Christmas. He was on the evening news with Dan Rather, uh, the anchor of CBS News, and Dan Rather asked him, he said, Aaron Feuerstein, why did you... Uh, help your workers, even though your factory burned down. And he quoted Jewish tradition. He said, in a place where there is no man, stand forward and stand up and be a man. And he said that was what he learned. But this whole tradition of the mensch who saved Christmas is, you know, Jews who also dress up as Santa Claus and spread holiday cheer. And there's this famous story on the west side of Manhattan that, um, Alan King went up to a Santa Claus and found out it was a Russian Jew who only spoke Yiddish, and he said to him, you know, why are you doing this? He said, you know, a, a person needs to make a living, is what the Russian Jew said in Yiddish. And I sent you a picture of Chabad finding that a Santa Claus is Jewish and putting tefillin on him. There's a picture of that uh, that's circulating online. Literally a moment or so less. There is a war against Christmas. There's also a war against Hanukkah. Rabbi Ari Lem, we had him on the program recently about the liberal elites' war against Hanukkah. They're against any religious celebration, and that's maybe that's part of what, unfortunately, part of the American scene as well. Well, you know what Woody Guthrie said? Woody Guthrie wrote, Woody Guthrie, the most famous folk musician of the 20th century, who wrote, who wrote This Land is Your Land. He wrote many of the most popular folk songs of the United States. He, uh, he was married to a uh, Jewish woman whose his mother-in-law was a famous Yiddish poetess, and uh, he wrote Hanukkah musical lyrics and songs for Hanukkah already in the 1940s. And we play some of that on our website. Uh, yes, I remember they had some... And the Klezmatics uh, actually played, uh, put together music for some of the songs that didn't have uh, uh, a melody, and he, Woody, Woody Guthrie said, all or nothing when it came to religion. So they can all coexist together, or he wanted none of them. That's what he said. So I think the war on Hanukkah, the war on Christmas, there is no war on Christmas. Not, by, not, not, not for Jewish people. We are respectful, and we enjoy that others are celebrating their religion uh, in a peaceful way in a way of coexistence, and those who are attacking Hanukkah are, you know, are, I, don't, I don't know what's going through their mind, but, you know, we're not trying to use Hanukkah to take over another holiday. We want to celebrate our holiday. We want others to enjoy their holidays. So it's religions existing side by side. 
Now, we're, we're barely scratched the surface, but we appreciate you being here with us. Uh, Dr. Joshua Plout, the book is called A Kosher Christmas is a Season to be Jewish. You also have, you and your wife also have a blog site where you talk about these things and updating all these things. It's, you've written the definitive study about to be a Jew at Christmas time. Yes, and I just hope people, this is about proclaiming and strengthening your Jewish identity during this time of the year. It's not about hiding in your home. It's about looking for those parts of your Jewish identity that you can express as who you are as a Jew during the Christmas season, which happen to in many ways have certain values of the season, goodwill to humanity, fellowship, brotherhood and sisterhood, and even especially doing acts of tzedakah. And we didn't, we, we didn't get to talk about it, but I, I love to, it was the night before Hanukkah where they have all these cartoons and drawings of Santa Claus coming to a Jewish home and eating latkes and the, the many different variations that's in the book as well. What's the block site that people can go find out more information? It's, it's org. Dr. Joshua Plout, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for sharing some of your insights. What's I just want to explain one more thing, that sure. the word kosher is a kosher Christmas. doesn't have to do with food. It, it has to do with, it, it's, not, it's about not celebrating Christmas. It's about observing one's Jewish identity during the Christmas season. I wish can get lost, and that's why people are appreciative of something Jewish, especially during this time of year, people who are spiritually searching. Thank you for sharing that and being part of our broadcast. Thank you. And we're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.